This is the Blackout Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Blackout Podcast, where I talk to people I find super interesting, super intriguing, with pink hair. <laughs> people that inspire me to be a better creator, and I try to understand their process and get to know them better. And today, I'm lucky to have someone I respect, someone that is well-known in the city, someone that makes image come to life, someone I like to call Mr. McCombs. Hi, Brent. Thanks for coming in today. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. I, I've been wanting to make this happen, but you're super, super busy. And then you fell sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still am, so. <laughs> I, try to, I try to say, oh, he's here, so he's feeling better. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, why photos? Oh, um, why photos? Yeah. Um, I like to say I'm on the leading edge of the 1950s. Um <laughs> It's the technology of the future, <laughs> then. Um, no, I, I just, I fell in love with fashion photographs when I was a wee little boy, um, looking at my mother's Vogue magazines and Cosmopolitan magazines, and I, I didn't really pay attention to any of the quizzes or the articles or whatever. It was just the ads. Mm. The ads looked really cool. Um, and then I um, proceeded to not do that for the next 35 years what uh, are you doing then i have four university degrees what uh, yeah <laughs> oh, no 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 wait, wait 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 pause 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 four why um a long story that has nothing to do with photography yeah. um i'm this i'm the son of a second generation immigrants and you had to become either a doctor or a lawyer uh, dentist, architect, there's like six fields that you were allowed to be, mm. or you were a great disappointment to your parents. So I um, struggled to find my way in their eyes for mm. a long time. Um, I honestly didn't even know it wasn't my calling or whatever. Um, I was good at school. Um, I didn't find it difficult, and I found it fun. So doing that seemed logical. Mm. And photography had been a little bit a part of my life. Um, when I was in 12th grade, my dad, um, we were in, I grew up in Niagara, and um, we were over in Buffalo, New York at some gleaming mall they had there. And we went to like the biggest camera store I'd ever seen to that point. And I don't know why, but I just started pawing a camera that they had on display. And my parents were reasonably frugal. Um, when I was growing up with everything except hockey gear, <laughs> um, I think they wanted to make sure I was protected. It didn't end up working out all that great, but, um, uh, yeah, but for some reason, my dad, um, decided to buy me a camera for my birthday when I was in grade 12. And that sent me off probably about a year and a half of making thousands of really terrible photographs. Um, well, I mean, I didn't know anything about how the camera worked or, or, or anything. So this was film, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they had invented film by then. Mm. Um, <laughs> anyway. You know, you know when, to be honest, when you see your post on Facebook, it's like I'm talking to a different person. I like this person more. Uh, <laughs> I'm less of an asshole. Person. <laughs> That's not true. Wait. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so uh, that went great until I went to university and discovered that 
you didn't hand your dad the roll of film and get back pictures. You had to pay somebody to do that shit. <laughs> so I stopped photography for quite a while. Um, and I didn't find it again until I was through all of the university and working. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my first jobs after university was um, at the Harbor Solutions Project. And I was a communications coordinator for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to take photographs with their digital camera, which I found amazing. It was just crappy landscape shots of, hey, sewage treatment plants going in your backyard. <laughs> Lucky you. Um, but when I left that job, mm. um, I was walking home. I, I actually quit. And I realized the only thing I was going to miss was that digital camera. Oh, wow. And it was three days after my ex-wife and I had bought our first house in Halifax. <laughs> and so I figured um, I just quit my job. I owe $212,000 to somebody. Okay. <laughs> What's the difference of owing someone $212,600? So I, oh, that's the my sister. So on my way home from quitting my job, I bought myself a digital camera. Mm. And the idea was sort of to give myself something to do while I was unemployed. I ended up only being unemployed for three days. But mm. um, in my next job, I was working at the Daily News, the old newspaper here. Mm. And, and a few days into that... I was offered a position to be the editor of the automotive insert that went in. Oh, wow. Um, Did you have, like, a car background? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> Scuttlebutt went around the office in the morning, and it was sort of suggested that this job would be open. Okay. Um, and I was asked, what do you know about cars? And I answered honestly that my dad owned an automotive repair shop for 35 years. Ah, uh, gotcha. I, I didn't know anything about cars, but that was an honest answer. It just omitted the relevant facts. Oh, yeah, I owned it, but uh, I never yeah. did anything with the cars. No. Um, so I got that job, and okay. it was awesome. Uh, it, it didn't pay fantastically, but it, the perks were great. And I ended up um, – the job traditionally was working with the dealerships in town and just sending a, a – a, not a staff writer, but uh, – um, a freelance writer out to with a camera to interview and then do a promo piece on a car. Mm. But I started contacting manufacturers, so, you know, GM and Hyundai and Toyota and whomever, and arranging to have cars, the, the press vehicles that went around through Canada to be delivered and started using those, started, got on a list, ended up flying around North America, um, test driving and photographing cars where I really didn't know how, how to do it, but I was being helped by the people who did. So mm. yeah, that's how I got into photography. Um, when I left that job, uh, I left because it was a great job, but my mother got quite sick in Ontario and I'd been living here probably about nine years at that point. Okay. And I added up the number of the amount, full amount of time that, oh, sorry, full amount of time I'd visited my parents in those nine years. And it was eight weeks. Oh. And my mom was had terminal cancer, so I was like, well, this is obviously my priority. Um, the job didn't want to allow me to um, work from the road, even though I had been working from the road previously. Mm. So I left. Um, and I had to find something to pay the mortgage that I had. And I, with 10 years of university and having been an editor at a newspaper, I could write. So I was a freelance writer for all intents and purposes mm-hmm. who could take a photograph a bit. And that became better and better, uh, or I got a little bit better and better at that. Mm. Uh, but it became more and more part of what I did when 
um, the newspaper or some of the magazines like Soulscapes or whatever I was working with um, didn't have one of their staff photographers or their regular freelancers to go do something, they might call me and say, hey, can you go out and do this? So I started like taking pictures for the cover of like Holmes magazine or stuff like that Christmas light somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, now, my mom was sick and I was spending like a week or two in Halifax, a week or two or two or three weeks in Ontario every month. And my mom was bedridden for probably 14 months, 12, 14 months of that. Anyway, um, she really missed getting out of the house. And they'd come and they'd come to Halifax twice and visited. And my mom had loved the city and they had originally had plans to retire here, move out to the East coast. Um, it's sort of the perfect thing, the ocean for her. She grew up on a lake in Windsor, um, looking at Detroit. And she loved the fact that you could be in Dartmouth and look across and see Halifax. Anyway, um, that obviously wasn't going to happen. And so she was locked in this bed. And what I did was in Halifax, every day I'd get up and I, I'd keep a diary, ridiculously detailed. Wow. Like a cat woke me up this morning and I was trying to put my contact lenses in and the cat knocked the contact lens case off. And I went down and we were at a cereal, like every little detail. Um, that went on. I'd go back to Ontario and every day in Ontario that I was with my mom, I would read one day from Halifax. Yeah. And it would take me three or four hours to go through this entire diary day mm -hmm. and my mom would just lay in bed close her eyes and envision everything that she could remember from halifax and everything she could and i'd try to be like ridiculously descriptive of and it helped her at least i think it helped her mentally get out of the bedroom she was stuck in mm -hmm. um, that went on for over a year and on one of the last actually six days before she passed away i was relating another day in Halifax and I'd written uh, an article, a promo piece on Quiznos, the one over downtown by Pete's that okay. has just recently opened. Um, and I had had fun by, by taking the Quiznos vehicle over to the Citadel Hill and taking the picture of that. Um, and I was relating the story and I'd set up lights and had the sun setting in the background. It's a terrible picture when I look at it now, but um, back then it was quite you know, I thought it was quite good. Um, and I was enthusiastic about it. And when I was finished that story, my mom rolled over and she looked at me and she was quite feeble by this point, but she said, you really love photography, don't you? And I said, Oh my God, I love photography. It's so much fun. I, I, I have no training in it, but I learn something new every day and I get to work with people and I get to be outside. It's not like writing where you're like in your basement, staring at a computer screen, trying to figure out the 78th way to say that this new restaurant was awesome. <laughs> um, no, which got really hard. Like I'd be writing an article on offshore oil and gas or something. And I'd be trying to contact someone from Emra who was on vacation in the Seychelles and trying to get somebody from the government of Canada who wasn't taking calls. And you'd be a week writing a 350 word article for 12 cents a word oh, and it's like flip. yeah it was terrible but photographs they pay you 50 bucks a photo and you know sometimes they'd say get in this helicopter and go fly around deep panook and take pictures of it and you're like this okay. is brilliant right yeah. anyway so i talked about the quiznos thing my mom rolled over she says you love photography i said i totally love photography it's amazing and again immigrant children um she looked at me and she said well then why aren't you a photographer mm. And my life stopped. It felt like everything screeched to a halt because to me that was getting permission from my parents not to have to try to go into law, which is sort of what I was aiming for. And anyway, she passed away a few days later. 
Uh, my parents weren't wealthy, um, but my mom left me about $20,000. And I figured I could either pay off some of my mortgage, get a new car, which I desperately needed, um, probably go on a kick-ass vacation, or I could take the money, not cost my family anything at that point, buy some camera gear, try photography for a year. And the entire time my mom was sick, um, she didn't have a lot of regrets about things she'd done in life, but I realized and learned that she had many regrets about the things she did not do in life. Mm. And I decided I didn't want to wake up one day 60 years old and saying, oh, I could have been a photographer, but never gave it a shot. And I think there's great value in failure. Um, if you attempt something and you learn that it's not for you, mm. uh, I don't think failure is as bad a word as we treat it. In fact, most of my photography is entirely based on failing until I fail to fail. Um, but yeah, I, I was messed up for about three months. Only child parent passed away. Oh, Dad needed help. Um, but after that, I just decided, shag it. I'm going to order some camera gear. And uh, I rented studio space on Spring Garden Road and gave myself a year to fuck up. And then I was going to go back to a cubicle and earn real money. And that was 12 years ago. That's why photographs. Thanks. Okay. You have a second question? <laughs> yeah, that took me on a journey. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, because I like how you brought in the immigrant parent thing and being kind of pigeonholed in, you have to do this. And that responsibility that you carry, right? And realizing that, you know, you already actually kind of had the go ahead to do this, right? And but it was actually hearing her say that put you on this path. Um and the other thing you said is like you have to be comfortable with failing. Do you think I like how especially on the Facebook group where you have people put up their photos and then you actually read it. It's <laughs> these days where everyone is on Instagram, there's this whole uh, you know, it's not good enough, it's not good enough. But when you make a comment, I like it that it's not a it's a critique. It's like, this is how to make this photo better. And I'm saying because I've taken, I don't know, like a million photos or whatever by now. So I've seen different things. I've experienced different things. But I'm not going to say it in such a way that will make you feel bad about yourself. I'm going to say it in a way that if you do this thing, you'll get better. I, I really, really, really love that. And when did you decide actually to start that group? I didn't start the group. Uh, what? No? No. I, I actually don't know the person who started that group. Oh, okay. Um, Ashlyn Marie uh, Ramsey is the person who was co-running it with the other person who's moved away, not part of Halifax scene anymore. Mm. Um, I think I've had a grand total of one interaction with her ever. Okay. Um, and it was like a group thing that Ashlyn attached me to, so I, I don't have a ton of memory of it. Mm. Um, but... I was part of another group, um, <laughs> the Models of Halifax group, mm. and uh, was removed from that group. Because? Um, I really, the the owner of that group and I had a major falling out, um, mm. the guy who started it. And Over what? <sighs> I mean, you don't. No, oddly enough, um, uh, probably many, many things. Um, the, the trigger in, in the case that, to end everything between us was um, the um, Maritime Beauty hosts a carnival of beauty every year in Halifax and four or five, six years ago, the cover of their brochure 
was a circus shot with a model on it, but it wasn't shot in Halifax. Now, Maritime oh. Beauty goes out of their way to say shop local, shop local, and I support shop local, buy local, mm. of course. Um, our studio is one of very few in North America that's rigged for shooting circus, and it's fully rentable, so me or my studio partner didn't have to shoot it. Anyone could have in the city. Um, they never approached us. Um, I made a post on my own Facebook group, not attached to Carnival Beauty, not attached to um, Maritime Beauty, just saying this is why we can't have nice things. Mm. This was also during the Nova Scotia Film Jobs push to try to, ah. you know. And I'm like, if you're going to do a circus thing, when we have two or three circus schools in town with amazing circus performers, mm. somebody had won the Carnival of Beauty hair competition the year before, so they have an amazing hairstylist available. We have all kinds of brilliant makeup artists in the city. That should have been a local project. Mm. There's no question in my mind to this day that should have been a local project if they're going to put a circus shot on the cover of their magazine. Mm. But they didn't because it was cheaper. Okay. Right? Mm. Maybe it was cheaper. They never even asked. The fact is there's probably about a half dozen photographers in this city with cool circus shots, with local hairstylists, with local makeup artists. Mm. They never inquired. They didn't look into it. They went easy. Mm. by a stock image which is what they did oh man whatever I, and you know it was just a throwaway comment yeah I wasn't making a point of it it was just this is why we can't have nice things mm. it got jumped on how do you know that model's not from Halifax well <laughs> and people you know there, most people were very supportive of the post but he had Maritime Beauty as a client gotcha. a few times and so he, he you know said you're a liar uh, that's not right and I'm like well it is right. And then I went and proceeded to find the stock image where it was bought. And, oh, man. But he just started private messaging me. And I was at a point where there'd been enough arguing on the internet over, back then, Stephen Harper uh, and all kinds of stuff that I was tired of it. Mm. And so I kept replying to all of his private messages, look, Brian, I don't want to have this conversation. Mm. I'm just not going to participate. Mm -hmm. And he just kept saying very, very unforgivable things. So oh, that was the end of that. And I just like... Yeah. yeah. And then my wife and I went to Scotland and he removed us both from the group for some reason. She's a local model, but he, he can do what he wants. So anyway, that's the group that I was started. I was an admin of that. Mm. Um, I pulled back from the whole social media scene for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I got brought back. My wife was a moderator of the Halifax Models and Photographers. It was the... I'll say the junior group. It was smaller in number and more geared towards new people to the industry. Mm. People who were wannabes or hopeful models or photographers, learning people. Mm. It was more attractive to me than the pat on the back professional group in the city anyway. Um, and my wife ended up not wanting, she doesn't deal particularly great with conflict. Mm. Um, most people don't like it in their lives at all. Um, and you know, uh, so she left and made me a moderator and I'm like, I don't want to be this. Mm. Um, but, um, I asked the people in the group, I said, you guys vote, decide if you want me or not. And they voted to keep me in there. So I stayed in and, um, now Ashlyn and I, and we ended up bringing in a, a number of other locals, like head of modeling agencies. It was essentially two or three people running everything from the perspective of photographers. And it was me, who's like an old white guy, another two old white guys, and Ashlyn, who's a trans uh, 
woman. And I'm like, we need, we're all photographers. And we're like, we need different perspectives. So we brought in models and agents and makeup artists. And mm. now it's a lot more diverse group running it. Nobody has final say over everything. So. Yeah, I like it. I, I like how it's 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 a resource. I said as a resource, um, but also I like how <laughs> there was a post the other day. And um, do you think? Yeah, I'm not gonna comment about that post. So I'm just gonna ask this: Do you think sometimes people put up posts without looking at the bigger context? So because they had this experience, they see that that's the whole world view instead of looking at it from out here. Unless you talk specifics. <laughs> All I'm going to say is, yes, of course that can happen. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, well, so someone made a comment about uh, that people are always saying they don't invite models of a certain size. Yeah. If you look at the banner of the group, um, and me. <laughs> um, no, I, it, it, we. I'm the photographer for Atlantic Fashion Week, and we get that criticism every year. Mm. You don't have plus size models, mm. and then I can link to several runway shots of plus size models. The trouble is that there are, uh, and this this goes for people of any size and any gender, um, people who believe that they deserve to be in something because they have a very high opinion of themselves, which is good for self-esteem reasons, but not particularly good if you go out American Idol and can't sing. In addition, people make fun of you. The same happens with modeling. They can't model. They don't have any appreciation for the skill involved in modeling uh, or what it means to be photogenic. Mm. You know, someone, someone's parent might tell them, oh my God, you're so beautiful. Or their boyfriend or girlfriend will tell them how pretty they are. Mm. And they think, well, I should be a model. And well, that, it's like saying, you have really nice hands. Come play this piano. <laughs> <laughs> it does not work like that. There's skill involved. But the reality is, this is, this, I mean, I, I've, I did my training in Los Angeles. I've worked in New York and London and around the world. Um, this is the one city in, that has a, something of a fashion week where you can be too tall or too thin. Mm. Like that's, it, it, they want average sized people here. And true-sized people, we have the the shortest person to walk in Atlantic Fashion Week was uh, adult was four foot eleven or so, mm. and we have had several women over forty. We have had several women oversized twenty in the show. Mm. In fact, some of the best walks ever have been by very large women, mm. and it's because they have amazing confidence and amazing grace and amazing beauty. And people want to participate in what emotion that they're selling with mm. those garments on. And the designers can see it and, and sell that. But if you notice the person who made that post had one other previous post in the group in ever. Mm. And the first two pictures on their profile are a, f a picture with like Instagram deer ears and eyes and a fake dog nose. Yeah. And then a picture of them with no makeup on. Smoking a joint. Well, I don't know a lot of clients who want, like, you know, marijuana is legal and everything, but you, if you want to book somebody to do a job, you don't want to think that they're casually just shagging off every day. You want someone who's got a modicum of professionalism about them. Mm. And the person was taking no effort to actually do modeling or learn about modeling. And then they decided to complain that nobody gave them a chance. Mm. Exactly. I have no interest in giving them a chance mm. if they're not looking to make a chance for themselves. Yeah. 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 You know, I just, I, it's not just in our group. It's just, I, I see that oh, yeah, yeah. happening on, especially Instagram a lot, but, but you can't 
put your focus here when there's a big thing. You're not looking at a big picture. And then in that same uh, comment, someone said, oh, yeah, I'll take your photo. And she didn't even say anything back. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'm going to go back. So, you, you you took this money from your mom. Go gear. Go your studio. And then what? how did it start? <laughs> it started with a lot of silence. <laughs> no, I mean, I I... I, I I opened my studio on Spring Garden on January 2nd, 2007, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, nobody knocked on my door or emailed me or messaged me for at least three and a half months. Wow. I took the lights and I, I got an old mannequin head and I just treated it like a nine to five job. I went in every morning at about 10 to nine and... I played with my lights and took pictures and pictures and pictures and made probably 150,000 bad photos of every object in my studio. And the mannequin head was the primary thing I used, but spoons and milk cartons and anything. And I'm, you know, one light, one light, one light, one light at a second light, moving it, moving it, moving it. And just, it was before there were so many instructional videos on the internet at Mm. that point. Um, and I'm not really good at watching videos on the internet and learning mm. from scratch. I got some advice from Steve R- R- Richard, who's like my studio partner now. Um, and he was and is the leading photographer in probably Eastern Canada, mm. um, which was go to workshops, learn from the best. And I started doing that. And I got a break in L.A. Um, with a photographer out there named Suzette Troche and worked with her a lot and learned fast because when you're out there it being good for halifax isn't doesn't swing it out there you just gotta be good or you get fired i mean i i saw tons of people get fired off photo sets in la what like right there yeah holy smokes you do the job or you can be replaced well i guess because there's a you know the way more people there doing and there's that. no time you know, like the one of the first sets I ever walked on was a People magazine shoot, and I had no idea what was going on, but I wasn't asked to do very much, like move some grip around the set and make coffee and go get the sushi at the thing, but like I was a total gopher, but it, it was do it right or go home. Mm. Uh, Suzette literally said to me, I'll explain everything once. If you understand, great. If not, fuck off. And that was it. And you would just not be asked back. So, and that's, that's a great way to learn. And earlier you were talking about my critiques on, on the Facebook group and, yeah. and saying that I word things so as not to hurt people. Mm. That's not true. <laughs> I honestly don't care that much about their feelings. And in fact, I think it's slightly better if they are hurt a tiny bit. Mm. And I went through my photo reviews and every one of them hurt a tiny bit. And it hurts because you are vested in the image. You care about what you do. And when someone tells you what you're doing isn't good enough, that should hurt a bit. Mm. But if it hurts a bit, you want to make sure it doesn't hurt a bit in the future. Mm. Now, I'm not, I'm never talking about the person. I'm always talking about the work, but it's really, really hard to separate when you're new, you from your work. It's hard now. Mm. Um, so I just want to give a stinging critique because, and I've read a lot about critiques, academic studies of how people hear criticism mm. um 10 years of university coming in useful for something um <laughs> but if there's a traditional way to give criticism and it's called a shit sandwich so you say something nice then you give the criticism and then you finish with something nice mm. 
people interviewed when they come out of critiques who've been given a shit sandwich will come out and invariably talk about how awesome they, the person thought your work was. Mm. And they'll talk about the last thing you said, mm. which is a positive. Mm. That's what they take away. That doesn't make you better. If I want to make you my friend, I can by looking at your work and telling you how amazing it is and finding that, oh my God, I love how you've uh, posed the, the model here and the choice of garment is amazing. The shadows are terrible. The background sucks. Whatever. I don't mention that, but you like me and now we're buddies. Mm. Great. Pat on the back. But it won't make your work better. Yeah. And it's not my responsibility to be your buddy because I tell you nice things about bad photos. Mm. It's my responsibility, if I'm going to hold myself out as someone who can critique photos, to give you a proper critique. It's your responsibility to adult up and take that critique and do something with it. Yeah. Or not. I don't care. It's, I can't be completely vested in your work. It's not my work. I can't make you a better photo photographer. Mm. Only you can do that. But I can help you see your photograph better. And that's the big problem that most artists in most artistic fields have mm. is that we literally can't see our own work with a critical eye of everyone else. Yeah. Or we see it with the eyes of Facebook, which hits the <laughs> like button. Everybody loves whatever you do. Mm. And quality is falling away as an important factor. Cool, even in fashion photography, is way more important than good. Mm. And... Again, I'm a dinosaur in photography and in art in that I don't accept that. I am decidedly uncool, so I have to work to my strength, which is being good with light. Because mm. I'll never be cool. <laughs> I don't think so. I think with the Wet Look series, that's the wet cool. Look, uh, the Wet Look series is cold um, and uncomfortable and moist. Anyway, um, <laughs> no, the Wet Look series isn't anything spectacular, but it's a lot of fun. And that can be empowering, and it's a low-cost series that I can give to people. Uh, well, not give to people. I charge them. But they can access working with me a lot cheaper than normal. I mean, I'm usually $350 an hour, and this is like a $60 series. So, mm. um, And it's fun. And it's, it's an easy setup for me because it, I took a long time to build it and figure it out. But now I do it over and over again. Mm. Shooting series is so much simpler for me than creating entirely new sets and lighting design every single shoot. Ah. So as soon as I hit on something that I can recreate very simply, and then it just becomes about me interacting with the subject on the set and getting them to forget about the camera, forget about the set, and just access a real emotion. Mm. And this is uncomfortable for Southern Ontario boy who grew up Catholic trying to get somebody to access their sexuality and, and be very raw on camera camera with it and some people especially today it's it's not that hard for them but other people it can be really hard and then you get people who come in and and the whole design of the series was that we just have to shoot the face and have really really sexy image without having to show boobs or bum mm. now we do do that sometimes because the client requests it but the the origin of the series was being super sexual but just with your face mm. and that was a challenge. And that's not how most people shoot boudoir. Everything's mm. about curvy bum, nice boobs, whatever. Yeah. Cut abs, awesome chest. Um, so when we started this, and it was it was entirely prompted because I shoot for a makeup school, and they didn't want any of that stuff in the shot. They just wanted the makeup. And I'm like, I can do a boudoir shot with just the face. We started selling the series, and we've had a couple of the best moments I think I've ever had in photography. Uh, we had a woman in her late 50s come in. She booked the shoot. 
um, she'd had a double mastectomy. Mm. She was a cancer survivor. And we had a makeup artist come in, volunteer her time, did beautiful makeup on her. And we shoot to two big monitors, sort of like this in the studio. Mm. And she had no confidence when she came in she was like apologizing for absolutely everything about her um and didn't think that she could look good we asked her to wear lingerie um something she was comfortable in um that she felt sexy in and she told us quite openly that she didn't feel sexy in anything anymore and we're like okay but what would you have felt sexy in Mm -hmm. and if you're comfortable wear that and she did it was just like a very very not revealing sort of bodysuit and then she had to attract pants on because we don't care about the bottom mm. um and we had her wear high heels because high heels make a lot of people feel sexier um anyway the first photos come up on the screen and she was just beside herself she says oh my god i'm beautiful and we're like yes and that was an incredible moment she loved the shoot she transformed in a few seconds. And this is something that happens a lot on that set. It happens more on that set than on any of my fashion sets or anything. It's one of the reasons I keep continuing the series, even though it does get a little bit old for me doing it. Like we've, we've shot over 160 of them now. Um, but anyway, uh, (laughs) we had another woman come in and I, I think that she can best be described as a background actor extra from sons of anarchy. Oh. very hard looking biker type woman mm. probably hasn't worn makeup in 30 years mm. in her 60s tattoos and and uh heavy smoker's voice mm. and we had makeup uh done with her as well and she was sitting so the mirrors were behind her in the studio and she was facing out and the makeup artist was working on her mm. and i'd asked the makeup artist to work like that and then when she was done we said, she, the makeup artist said, okay, you can turn around and take a look. And she turned around and her hair had been like just jushed a bit because we're going to wet it. Mm. But her makeup was perfect. And she got up and, and she leaned in and she touched the mirror in the studio and she was crying. Ruined the makeup, had to be redone. <laughs> and of course, well, my camera was sitting yeah. over on the set. So I didn't get a shot of her doing this because yeah. I'm a terrible photographer. <laughs> <laughs> but it was such a brilliant moment mm. that it was like, wow, like this... You know, I've had I've had fashion images seen by seven, eight million people, and this image it was a private image. I can't share it. It's only ever for her, mm. but it probably is more meaningful in the long term than anything I ever did in fashion. Mm. So, I love that series, but it, it's it's a personal thing for people, and 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 the emotion, not so much the artwork of yeah. it. Although sometimes we've gotten lucky and made some pretty cool images. I know people people always want to want to do that. Something I'm super curious about uh, as the photographer for Atlantic Fashion Week, what is the process that goes into that whole week for you from the photography part? Yeah. You might be the first person to ever ask that question. <laughs> I've always been curious about that. Cause... It's it's a lot more than you think. We start a couple months before. Yeah, right? Angela, Angela me. Campagnoni um is the director of Atlantic Fashion Week and I've been working Fashion Week since its second um edition. Um like 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Mm. Um, we hold the model call at my studio. Um, and that is a uh, one or two day prep because I actually build a runway in my studio. I light it. Oh, wow. I set up all the seating for all the designers to come in and we set up the area for the mo- holding area for models. Like we're not set up for that. So I build all that. Um, and then uh, in the lead up to fashion week, I'll go visit the venue yeah. with Angela and we'll look at the lighting and decide what we need. Mm. Um, 
a few years ago, we were out in Dartmouth Crossing at an empty store, mm. and we had it there. And I went in and had to re-aim every little store fixture to the runway. So it was like a you know, 16-foot ladder, get up, go down, up and down, up and down. It took me about nine hours to do that. Whoa. Um, another year, we were at um, uh, Gallery 1, and <laughs> that year was wonderful because I had the people at Gallery 1 do what I asked them to do with the lighting. <laughs> um and then it's it, it's it's morphed into um, contacting the designers and uh, offering a photo package so to make the cost low or zero for Atlantic Fashion Week mm. and letting the designers get good quality images that they can use in advertising or marketing or lookbooks or however they want. Mm. Um, if everybody or the majority of people in Fashion Week buy into a package, then having me there is really, really inexpensive for each one individually. Yeah. So that's how we've worked that. We sort of split the cost. It's voluntary. They don't have to buy in. Yeah. But because I give them all the rights to use it, and people were using the images anyway. Like, I'd show up and there'd be, like, at, at a market, and one of my web-sized images would be blown up to poster size, pixelated all the hack. <sighs> And I'm like, oh, my God, one, you didn't have permission. Two, it looks terrible. Mm. Just call me. I would have given you the file rather than have my own work. Look, and, like, my, you know, tag on the bottom of it just looks terrible. So now we've gotten around all that. Um, Fashion Week shooting, um, I have often had students with me from one of the colleges. Mm. So I'll be a day or two of instruction before Fashion Week. Then we'll shoot. And Fashion Week is usually two, three, four, once, six nights. Wow. Um, so shoot all that. Try to process that evening, like late after the after party, at least 20 to 40 images that press can use the next day if they need them, and then go through the seven to 9,000 shots I'll take during Fashion Week and give every designer at least two good shots of each garment. Holy smokes. Let me finish up with this. Uh, when it comes to your experience, the years you put in, the tons and thousands of pictures you've taken what's your thoughts on people especially on instagram not really facebook much but especially on instagram the, um, iphone has that portrait thing and then they go out and snap something and it, it looks great but it isn't great i don't know how to explain it but well if it looks great that's awesome i don't i don't care what goes into making a brilliant photo mm. um People get obsessed about this image is Photoshop too much or you don't know how to Photoshop or whatever. Um, that's Instagram filtered. It doesn't matter. If it's a great photo at the end of the day, it's a great photograph. Mm. It doesn't matter if your grandma shot it with the second photo she ever took with her brand new iPhone X. It doesn't matter. If it's a great photo, it stands on its own. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not repeatable by most people when they're told to get a photograph of a specific thing mm. in a specific environment, that's the d difference between a professional photographer and absolutely everybody else in the world who will get in the course of their time. Cause since we walk around with cameras on us 24 seven now, everybody will shoot half dozen brilliant photographs in their life. That's, that's amazing. I, I think I read a stat that more photographs have been shot in the last five years on iPhones alone than on all other camera systems in the history of photography. Wow. That's awesome. I think it's fantastic. More good photography is great. Mm. But the problem is it's not just more good photography. It's voluminous mountains of bad photography that people don't understand isn't good. Mm. And clients and, and 
models and other photographers are losing perspective historically on and craftsmanship wise what makes a good photograph mm. and a good photograph at the end of the day needs to tell a story it needs to evoke an emotion that's it doesn't have to be sharp. It doesn't have to have 4.9 million colors. It doesn't have to, you know, there's no rule. Mm. It has to tell a story. Um, uh, I have a lovely presentation that I quite enjoy doing because it's not on my work mm. um, on the best photographs in history and how to tell a story. And most of the photos you use, most of those iconic things that we know as amazingly powerful photographs are blurry, grainy, out of focus they're not great technically, but they are so tied to a moment in history or an emotion yeah. that they're, they're part of the human experience. It's sort of frozen in time. And those, the way our brain and our memory works, we access that photograph to help evoke all of the memories we have of that moment. I, I, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the Challenger exploding, but the, the blue sky with the puffy white clouds of and the the offshoots of the explosion mm -hmm. that's the memory that's in our head that 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 image and it's frozen as a photograph we don't necessarily remember it billowing out we remember that image because that's the image that was on the cover of every newspaper it's the image that's on the, every website we go to that froze that moment in time the vietnam war i wasn't around for that um probably very few people listening to this will have been but there's the photo of the of the um, North Vietnamese soldier shooting. Oh my God. Yeah. It's blurry. It's grainy. It's not in focus, yeah, but yeah, that yeah. tells the entire story yeah. of that war. The young girl running from the napalm attack. She's now living in Toronto, by the way, but yeah, okay. that's such a powerful moment. Those photos define yeah. generations. Most likely the best photographs of the 2000 teens and the 2020s, the photographs that do that, will have come from iPhones, mm. but random people taking them because they're in the place there that happens. Mm. But if you want a campaign to sh sell your dress <laughs> <laughs> and you need it shot on a Thursday uh, in, in, you know, Cape Breton and you've got four hours and the lighting is what it is. Well, you need a professional to go out and do that. Yeah. And that's, that's the difference. I, I think the best photography probably over the next hundred years will be created by average people, which I think is fantastic. Mm. You won't have to be a press photographer in the place. Mm. You know, the, the moments of the Ukrainian revolution should it happen against the Russians in Eastern Ukraine will be shot on iPhones. Mm. Um, so I, 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 you mentioned that Vietnamese photo for some reason, I actually checked that I, I was reading something and I, I saw that yesterday and I read the whole story about the thing and there are two conflicts inside about this whole thing. Um, I'm curious, do you have any of those photos that stand out for you? Well, those two that I mentioned, the photograph of the sailor and the nurse, uh, Times Square at the end of the Second World War. Uh, if you go to Freeman's restaurant, one of the booths, the media booth, has it in it. It's my booth. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like cider if you walk by it. So. <laughs> um, but no, it's, um, it, it, I love that photograph. The story behind it, um, his fiance, the sailor's fiance, is standing just off to the oh. side. And that's not a singular photograph. It's actually a series of 13, I think, photos that the press photographer who was walking by, whose name I can't remember, it's just terrible, I should. But anyway, he was walking by and he shot as he walked across the road. Mm. So he did a sort of semicircle around the sailor and the nurse kissing. And in a few of the frames, you can see his fiance off to the side. Mm. And she was found and interviewed 
four years ago, three years ago. And people had an, had a me too response to it. Well, did he just grab a woman and kiss her? And she was like, sort of, yes, but we were living. We thought we were going to die. We were going to war. We were in a war. A lot of our friends had died. We had just found out the war was over. Mm. Everybody was more jubilant and exuberant than you can imagine. And it wasn't sexual at the time. It was just a kiss. It was a, it was a, a ballroom dance dip mm. and a kiss, which was not what we in, uh, infer as kisses. And then there was the, well, weren't you upset that he was kissing another woman? And she's like, no, there was two service people kissing each other. They were going to live. It was, it's a beautiful moment that in the eyes of history gets misinterpreted and, and sort of twisted to, to represent what we want it to represent now versus mm -hmm. what it actually meant at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a nice little microcosm of how things change. Like I think the, the, the Vietnam girl running from the napalm with, you know, explosions in the background and terror on her face yeah. tells us what we need to know about war. And it's, it told us then it tells us now it's an amazing photograph. Yeah. The first photograph taken from the moon of Earth. Oh, the blue, what is it called? The blue marble, I think. Oh, God. That yeah. is all of us. I love that photograph because it's, it's, we're all on this ship together. Mm. And it doesn't matter which war-ravaged Middle Eastern nation you're from, which ghetto you're from in the States, which privileged place you're from on the North Pacific Northwest. We are all the same. Mm. And it's a message we haven't got yet. Mm -hmm. And that photo might take 100 years or 200 years to convey that. We might need a lot of other photos. But that's well, the first one. You know, it's one. funny because even with that photo, there are people that still think we're on a flat earth, though. Yeah. <laughs> there's people who voted for Trump. But people are allowed to be wrong. <laughs> okay, okay. I said I was going to end with that, but I'm really going to end with this. Uh, what advice do you have for someone that wants to actually follow their passion and become a fashion photographer like you? Fashion photographer specifically? Well, okay, let's say photographer. A photographer? Yeah. Um, shoot a lot. Learn how to read photographs. Mentor under the best people you possibly can. Mm. Um, photo programs are the second best way to learn photography. The best way is to find an actually brilliant photographer and work with them for two or three years. Great. It is probably... If you want to feed yourself and buy a nice car and go on trips, it's probably smarter to become decent at photography and really good at business mm. than to be really good at photography and not that good at business. I've tried the second way and it's not that great financially. No, I'm not kidding. And I, and I don't make a, everybody knows I'm terrible at business. <laughs> no, it's true. And I, I, I it's okay. I own that. Um, we have to own our faults. And I think that it's, there are people in town who are much like leaps and bounds better at marketing than I am. Mm. And they're doing at least as well as I am mm. economically, which great. Good for them. <laughs> okay. Okay, Brent. No, I'm actually going to have to call you to come back because I have so many questions, <laughs> but I'm out of time. Well, I also talk too long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super, super grateful you came in today. And I hope you feel better. I hope the tea helped. Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Cheers. This is the Blackout Podcast.
for listening.